This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we'll be talking about the post-Brexit business environment in Europe with Dennis Coleman, who's co-head of the Global Financing Group in our Investment Banking Division. Dennis, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So let's start with Brexit. It finally happened after uh, years of waiting. What's been the reaction in the business community across Europe so far? I, you know, I'd say the biggest reaction at this point in the in the developments of the Brexit situation is is really relief. We've been living with multiple years of of significant uncertainty, not knowing whether it would happen or not, on what basis and when. And a lot of work and and preparation uh, has gone into this ultimate decision. Now we know that Brexit will occur, but uh, exactly how it will occur and what will uh, unfold from here remains actually a bit of uncertainty for our clients. So as clients are thinking about the future, give me an example of how a client might be thinking about financing differently in the wake of Brexit. Sure. So, you know, leading up to Brexit, obviously an environment of uncertainty, you had people perhaps pausing or uh, reconsidering how aggressively they were interested in making an, a particular investment that would have an exposure to the UK economy or to certain types of businesses which have a supply chain linkage. You can think of you know big industries like autos, uh, where there's a, a structural relationship between the countries in the uh, continental Europe and the UK. And you know depending on what the result is in terms of the trade agreement, there remains some uncertainty in the sort of efficiency of supply chain and pricing mechanisms is still something that people have to think long and hard about. So away from Brexit, the ECB has been on pause for a bit uh, this year, and rates have been at historic lows, negative in, in many instances. Are you seeing an uptick in financing given you know the low rates? How's that, how's that playing out? Sure. Look, listen, year to date, um, new issue volumes have exploded in Europe. We had the, the biggest day ever for IG issuance in Europe. We had the biggest week ever for IG issuance this year at nearly $100 billion equivalent, which is an absolutely staggering amount of issuance in Europe for one week. Uh, if you move to non-investment grade credit markets, the loan market in non-IG space is up tenfold on a comparable year to date period. And the high yield bond market's up almost fivefold. So explosive levels of new issuance across the entire uh, credit spectrum coming out of Europe year to date. So Dennis, to the uninformed, it obviously makes sense why corporates are out issuing debt at these levels. Money's cheap and, and why not put some debt on if, it, if the costs of financing are pretty low. But who are the buyers? Give us a sense of why the yields are so low, why the spreads are so tight. What's going on in the market that's bringing investors in? I think uh, across the board, almost all of our investing clients are buying. You know, a notable buyer is the CSPP program of the ECB. You know, they're probably up to something like 200 billion. We think they they own sort of called 5% of the entire investment grade market in Europe. They've been a pretty savvy buyer. We observe they're they're sort of a better buyer on weaker or down days, but they've been putting substantial amounts of money to work, buying up a, a relatively substantial portion of the new issue supply, but participating in those transactions alongside our uh, all of our other investing clients. So they are one big buyer, but lots of our clients are active. So it's not just Europe that has low rates. We, we've got easy monetary policy across the globe in the U.S., Japan. Um, the U.S. looks high, but it's historically low. Is there anything that stands out particularly different about the Levfin market in Europe um, compared to some of those other countries? Sure. So, I mean, draw, draw the comparison. When I cite the non-IG stats for Europe up five and tenfold for high yield and loans, U.S. market's up twofold. So also, you know, substantial year-over-year increase, but much more pronounced in Europe. 
I guess the most sort of staggering reality of the non-investment grade European credit markets right now is just the all-in yields. So you have the tightest ever high yield bond deals pricing now in Europe at sub 1%. That's the all-in yield you earn for investing in non-investment grade European corporate credit. Even if you move down to single B territory in non-IG, we have deals pricing less than 2%. We had a sovereign uh, just recently price a 10-year transaction at a negative yield. So the story on, on yields remains uh, very much front and center for people, but just the all-in levels, particularly when you move into the leverage finance space, are a bit eye-popping. And do you attribute uh, some of the explosion in, in this lending, obviously partly to low rates, but also to the weakness of the European banking sector? Well, look, I think the driver for the all-in yields is a function of underlying rates, which is being driven by the ECB policy. And I think the weakness in and the relative weakness in the European economy is a big contributor to the rates picture, but also credit spreads remain very tight as well. Technicals are very strong. There remains a global search for yield and liquidity is pouring into yield asset classes globally and, and definitely in Europe as well. So you mentioned sluggish growth across the region. That's just been a fact for a while. How would you describe the fundamentals for European corporates that are operating in that environment? How, how are they feeling? Look, I think European corporates are muddling along. The, the general growth backdrop is marginally positive, but uh, at the same time, reasonably stable. And our clients are sort of taking care of business. They're they're prudently refinancing and terming out their capital structures. They're looking at strategic growth opportunities. We see a number of clients you know, thinking about M&A opportunities so they can drive some inorganic growth. And, and when you dovetail that with the sort of positive financing backdrop, it makes some of those transactions more achievable. So I think they're, you know, they're reasonably stable and trying to figure out how they can drive growth either organically or inorganically. So as I guess you partly answered this question, but how aggressive or conservative are our CEOs and executives been about just putting on more debt? There's a different perspective on, on debt tolerance, I would say, on either side of the Atlantic, where U.S. equity investment investors in particular have evidenced a higher degree of comfort with levered balance sheets than necessarily European equity investors. And while those investors are themselves global in nature now, there are some differences between, between the two markets. So a lot of the European corporates historically slightly less levered than some of their US counterparts. But given you know, really what the all-in level and cost of financing is, we're seeing more of our clients willing to take on debt, particularly if they see attractive opportunities to finance or grow their business. So rates are low. Probably will stay that way for a while. At least it seems so now. Brexit's resolved. US-China seems to be on pause a little bit. Economic fundamentals are decent, if not super strong. So what other risks are weighing on the minds of our clients? Right now, today, spot, it's coronavirus. Um, that is obviously impacting uh, sentiment. That is the sort of fear element. Markets gyrate between fear and greed. We've got some elements of fear creeping into global capital markets right now. Definitely some sort of pause inclination on behalf of some clients with respect to market access, but not across the board. Uh, we've seen some good opportunities uh, in the equity markets for clients to come to market and, and raise equity against this backdrop. And even today, you know, notwithstanding the tape, you know, equity markets are, are sharply higher. So it feels like uh, there's very, very good momentum in global assets, whether it be credit or equity, notwithstanding you know, the outlook, which is, I'd say, reasonably uncertain and particularly with respect to that health risk. Away from that, geopolitical, which is you know dominated headlines for the last number of months, there aren't a ton of looming issues. U.S. election will start to to weigh on people as they start to figure out how to position based on which way you know the candidates on the uh, Democratic side look to shake out, and then what the sort of relative estimates of winning successes between you know Republicans and Democrats. But that I think is you know something for uh, for the future if we can figure out how to hold an election properly. Um, so uh, you joined Goldman Sachs as an analyst almost 25 years ago, 1996. 
politics. What were the twists and turns that led to your current role in, in London? Twists and turns. Um, you know, like any uh, career on Wall Street, luck and timing was an important factor. I uh, signed up to join one group in uh, 1995. And when I arrived at the firm in 1996, I was told that I was entering a different group, uh, a group at the time called the Bank Loan Group, which was really the first place the firm ever tried to make a loan or become a lender. We didn't even have a leverage finance group at the time. And so that was a very long time ago, if you think about where the firm is now. Ultimately, the group I was part of merged with another group and renamed itself Leverage Finance. And so that's where that business uh, sort of began back in the in the mid to late 90s. And I bounced over to the securities division, uh, worked on a trading floor for a large number of years, understanding investors and the entire sales and trading framework, worked on a syndicate desk, and then uh, bounced back to the investment banking division to sort of run our leverage finance and then credit finance businesses sent over to London, you know, just over a decade ago to help, uh, you know, build out the institutional debt capital markets there. So um, I, I've bounced around divisions, I've bounced around regions, uh, lots of different jobs, but uh, all of them extremely exciting. So if you were talking to an analyst starting today, other than warning them to have good luck, uh, what other advice would you give them? Look, I, t I tell them that it's sort of never too early to start building relationships. And that's not necessarily the job of the uh, quote unquote senior bankers or senior salespeople. If you start investing in that process early in your career, you can you know have a very robust set of relationships you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years later. And so um, you know, at the end of the day, this is a client business. It's a relationship business. I'd urge even first year analysts to start uh, practicing their relationship building skills, get after it early. Yeah, some of the ne'er-do-wells I knew when I was uh, younger turned out to be pretty important these days. So I, you I never, you never know. Right? Yeah, you never know. So, Dennis, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And for more from Goldman Sachs experts, as well as influential policymakers, academics, and investors, be sure to check out our other podcast, Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, hosted by Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in the firm's research division. Thank you for listening. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.